Good afternoon, and thank you all for joining us for today's webinar. My name is Devin Bettinson, and I'm the BBA Section and Operations Assistant. We appreciate the support of our attendees and speakers. And before we begin, I want to provide a few reminders to participants. Though your mics and video are muted, please do submit questions to the speakers through the Q&A function. The speakers will answer as many questions as time allows. If you want to revisit this presentation, a recording of the program will be available within the next coming weeks. Lastly, if you'd like to turn on closed captioning, make sure to enable that at the bottom of your screen. The service is offered through Zoom, so we cannot guarantee the accuracy of the captions. And I will now turn it over to Keith. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Devin. Uh, I appreciate everybody uh, tuning in for this. Uh, we're, we're here to talk about uh, the Massachusetts Gaming Bill, and we've got four excellent panelists that are going to offer uh, a, a unique and different perspective about the bill, uh, as, as all of you may know. Uh, Massachusetts became the 33rd state uh, to go live with gaming in uh, January of this year. Uh, and, and just today, uh, two additional states, Vermont and North Carolina, came on uh, line as well. And we're looking forward to having uh, a lively uh, discussion. Uh, and certainly, we'll open it up to, to questions uh, from the audience through chat. Um, but before we get going, I want to do a quick intro to our, our four panelists. Uh, First, we have Representative Jerry Paracella. Uh, Representative Paracella, he represents the 6th Ethics Essex District of Massachusetts, which is uh, covers the city of Beverly and Precinct 1 in the town of Wenham. Uh, he was elected to the legislature in 2011, and he served as the chair of the Joint Committee on Veterans and Federal Affairs and the Joint Committee on Public Service. Uh, that was in the past, and now he currently serves as the chair of the Joint Committee on Economic Development and Emerging Technologies, which for those of you who followed it was the uh, committee that ultimately led to the passage of the Massachusetts Gaming Act. Um, Jerry is a retired Lieutenant Colonel in the Massachusetts National Guard, where he served as a Judge Advocate General in the 151st Regional Support Group. And he also serves in national, uh, the Army Reserves, and when he had served time and was deployed in Bosnia and Iraq. Um, Next, we have Katie Lane Bailey. Katie's one of my colleagues at Hollander Knight. She is in the Nashville office. She is a Nashville attorney and she's a registered lobbyist who represents and advises clients on uh, legislative and public policy and matters uh, in Tennessee. Uh, but she's been involved in the sports wagering and policymaking process uh, since the passage of the act in Tennessee in 2018. Um, and she is the go-to lawyer lobbyist for the professional sports leagues in Tennessee on gaming issues uh, and also works with the operators and vendors as well. She serves in a number of capacities for a variety of sports wagering clients, um, providing legal and regulatory guidance for all things gaming in Tennessee. And, and hopefully Katie's going to be able to provide us uh, with some perspective and some uh, experience that Tennessee has, has endured as they're a few years ahead of Massachusetts in this process. Next, we have uh, Jeff Salette. Jeff uh, is a friend and a uh, the Forensic and Integrity Services Partner at Ernst & Young. He serves on the Investigations and Compliance Team and his primary focus is on forensic services and investigations, crisis management services, and incident response. But prior to joining Ernst & Young, Jeff had a decorated and storied career uh, in the Department of Justice. Uh, he served, had 25 years experience in investigations and forensic accounting, government regulations, leadership and communications. And he was previously served as the associate deputy director of the FBI, which was the uh, third in command and in the FBI before he retired. 
as a special agent, Jeff incorporated forensic accounting with traditional methods of uh, to investigate terrorism and terrorism financing, fraud, corruption, and organized crime. And he also had, and you're going to hear about some of his experience today in, in how uh, organized crime and other things target uh, and see gaming as an opportunistic uh, venue for them to, uh, to, to attack. Um, and also when he was here in Boston, I believe you were the deputy special agent in charge in Boston uh, during the uh, Boston bombing of the marathon. Is that correct, Jeff? Jeff's a local boy at heart. Uh, and he grew up in Needham. Uh, and finally, we have my colleague, uh, Samir Patel. Samir is a technology attorney. He's a member of Holland and Knight's Innovation Practice Group. He's based in Miami, Florida. Samir specializes in blockchain technology. He works with companies, artists, and athletes uh, on how to use blockchain to diversify their brand and product extensions. Um, he's got an undergraduate degree in sports management and administration. And he focuses a big part of his practice on educating sports companies, state regulators, and the blockchain community on the benefits of using this emerging technology within the sports gambling industry. Um, so with that, and, and finally, just lastly, myself, I am a, a partner uh, at Holland and Knight here in the Boston office, and I am the co-chair of our sports industry team um, and, and focus on, on the sports industry, but also have some clients and, and looking at this emerging industry uh, and the gaming industry and sports wagering that is um, now sweeping the country. I think we're now up to 35 jurisdictions and states that allow it. And um, uh, and I'm happy to be the, the host of this panel. So um, with that, um, let me first turn and start with, with uh, Representative Paracella. Um, Jared, you know, the, the, the Massachusetts was, not the first state to jump into establishing a gaming um, platform here in Massachusetts, uh, and it took some time. And, and I know you were part of the legislative debate over this. And if you can maybe just at a high level talk a little about what were some of the issues that that Massachusetts and the legislature in particular was looking at um, before it decided to jump in and allow legalized sports gambling. Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me here. Appreciate it. So uh, in, in 2020, the Massachusetts House did pass a gaming bill, but it never was taken up by the Senate. So that sort of died that session. And then when we started the new session in 2021, I became chairman of the Economic Development Committee and gaming is has jurisdiction in our committee. So the speaker asked me to take another whack at it. So at that point, there were probably about 28 states or jurisdictions that had sports betting. So I had a chance to kind of review a bunch of other states and what they did um, with, uh, you know, Atlantic City being, you know, kind of the hotbed of activity, you know, with New Jersey being the first to enact it after the Supreme Court decision. So I, you know, I talked to a lot of folks. And so in July of 2021, the House, we passed our version of the bill. And then the Senate didn't take it up again until uh, 2022. And finally, literally like the last day of our session at five in the morning, we came to an agreement uh, to have sports betting. Our conference committee came to a resolution. The big issue really was uh, college betting. The house version allowed all college betting. The Senate version had no college betting at all. Um, there weren't, weren't any other jurisdictions that had outright bans on college. Um, but politics is the art of compromise. So what we ended up doing was 
what, what other states have done is we don't allow betting on Massachusetts colleges unless they're in a tournament with four or more teams. So that does allow folks to uh, bet on Boston and Massachusetts teams if they're in a tournament like March Madness, um, Frozen Four, things like that. Um, so it took a while, um, but I think at the end of the day, we got a good bill. Everyone that I've talked to in the industry and otherwise is happy with the outcome. Uh, I think I think the delay, you know, maybe was frustrating at time, but it did give us an opportunity to kind of look at best practices that were happening out there. And when the initial bill that was filed in 2020 had a five of uh, two hundred fifty thousand dollar licensing fee, and now the current bill has a five million dollar licensing fee. We realize that people want to get in the game, so um, in a way, it did help a little bit to delay because um, now any everyone who seeks a license in Massachusetts has to pay five million dollars, and it gets renewed every five years. The tax rate for uh, retail betting is 15% and the tax rate for mobile is 20%. So we got six mobile operators in Massachusetts. Uh, we have three casinos, they are allowed to do retail. And then there's two horse tracks that aren't in operation right now, but still have licenses and they will have the ability to offer retail as well when they get up and running. There's a Plain Ridge is, is currently constructing a, a facility, so they'll be able to offer retail and also the uh, retail establishments also can have uh, the two mobile apps tethered with them as well. Uh, as of now, we've uh, been alive, as you mentioned, since January. Um, Massachusetts has taken in about $21 million in taxes since we went live, which I think is a good number because um, I was told we probably could count on about 50 to 60 million annually. So we're exceeding expectations. As you know, Massachusetts is uh, in Boston. It's a crazy sports town. People love their sports here. And uh, about 450,000 people signed on to the mobile apps within the first two days of being allowed to. So it's very popular. It's doing really well. DraftKings is based in Boston, and they're the number one mobile provider right now in Massachusetts. So overall, it's going it's going really well, I believe. Yeah, so so to that point, and, and, and that you, you sort of segued into to where I wanted to turn next with you, which is with regards to the revenue possibilities that this creates for the Commonwealth. Um, you mentioned that uh, at least uh, the, the latest figures, and, and for those of you that are interested, the Massachusetts Gaming Commission is, is very punctual about on the 15th of each month or 15th or 16th, they, they put out the prior month's total uh, take on both the uh, the, the action and what the total amount of sports wagering, and then also they, they show the revenue figures. Um, and just by way of example, um, and, and you know, sort of proof that that gaming is here to stay, um, the online portion of the state sports wagering platform went live on March 10th. Um, prior to that, with just in-person wagering wagers on sports that started on January 31st in, in the casinos, there was a total of about um, 19 uh, or, or a little over $50 million that had been registered or, or bet just online. Uh, I'm sorry, just in person. But when it shifted to online, uh, I believe that there were it was close to $510 million of handle alone just on online sports betting for the month of March. So that went from March 10th, and so that's three weeks in March, 
it was over half a billion dollars of of sports wagers placed um and that has continued um the the figures for uh the latest figures for the april wagering show that there was 566 uh million dollars wagered uh and and as that's that's the total amount wagered the revenues uh and what the each of the casinos make on it's a little different but there is a a revenue structure that again has generated 21.45 million dollars in tax revenue for the commonwealth and, and and you know chairman maybe you could talk a little bit about what was the idea of the legislature when they were passing the the various taxes uh on the, the sports gaming operators what 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 was the idea of the the use for those tax revenues and what was you trying to hopefully earmark or, or specifically focus on with that extra dollars yeah so there was a couple of debate about what would be the right tax rate um you know, some states like Philadelphia are much higher than us. I think they're 35, 40%. Um, New Hampshire next door, they have 50%, but they're also just have one provider in DraftKings. So we kind of wanted to have as much competition as possible. Um, so with the tax rate itself, 15% for the retail, we figured, you know, getting people into the casinos has ancillary benefits as well, because not only will they be doing sports betting, but they'll also be you know, using the table games, buying food, buying drinks. So there's ancillary benefits for that. But about over 90% of the bets, I think it's about 95% now are mobile. So those are taxed at 20%. Uh, as far as like the breakdown of where the money goes, so about 45% of the money goes back to the state general fund. So it can be used for any kind of, uh, you know, spending on anything that the state, you know, feels it's appropriate. So it gets back to our general fund. About 27.5% goes back to our cities and towns. 17% uh, goes to a workforce fund. So basically it's for job training for folks. 9% goes to the public health trust fund. So that would be programs to help folks who are dealing with problem gaming. And then 1% goes to this youth development and activities fund. So it, it would provide grants to like, let's say for example, youth sports teams, drama teams, drama um, programs and things like that to provide extracurricular activities for our, typically for our high school students. Um, so before I, I, I segue to, to Katie, one of the uh, last questions I had for you, Chairman, and I'm going to come back to you with some follow-up later, but, um, you know, gaming's now been live in Massachusetts for a couple of months, and, and you know, we've seen some, some editorials on, on the Boston Globe and, and some other elected officials, you know, raising some concerns about um the way in which consumers are are targeted by the gaming companies um and and i know that you know the legislature you know went to great lengths it was focused on that and and you know empowered the gaming commission to address a lot of these issues from a regulatory standpoint um you know from where you sit do you do you see any you know what are the biggest i guess items that that you see as potentially being you know, we're requiring additional attention down the road, potentially from from the legislature uh, to to tweak what has has already, which I think is a very good and comprehensive bill. But is there anything that you see that might require further you know attention from the legislature? I think we really want to make it clear that first of all, you can't target anyone under twenty one. You know, it's twenty one in Massachusetts to bet. New Hampshire is eighteen, but we felt it was appropriate to be twenty one. Um, we don't allow credit cards, so um, we didn't want people racking up huge credit card debt. So we tried to have some of these consumer protections. Like I mentioned, 9% of the money going to the Public Health Trust Fund. 
um, to help folks who might be dealing with issues. Um, you can opt out, you can place limits on how much you can bet. But yeah, so we, you know, we are hearing, I mean, everyone was bombarded with ads, you know, when this first rolled out, you know, I was hearing a lot of people pretty upset about how many ads there were, but you know, that's kind of what you know, people are trying to grab those, uh, those players in the early days of it. Uh, so I think looking at that, making sure that they're targeting the right folks and not targeting those under age 21, providing the uh, game, they call it game sense, which is a program to ensure that people are responsibly gaming, make sure that's available to folks and it's widely known. We have an 800 number. Um, so those are the kind of things that I think, um, you know, we'll look at. But we did give flexibility in the legislation for the gaming commission to address these on the fly because i think as legislators we move slower so we wanted to uh, give the gaming commission the ability to act on the fly if need be to, to make changes to the regulations and do enforcement if necessary right so so thank you uh mr chairman um and so now i, I want to uh, katie i want to shift to you uh a little bit here and you know sort of i, I remember my, my history teacher uh, from grade school said that those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Um, you know, Tennessee is a little bit ahead of Massachusetts with its sports wagering statute. Uh, I believe uh, Tennessee passed its, its gaming legislation or sports gaming legislation in 2018. And, you know, you've got a lot of, of experience and history in working with the various professional sports leagues and, and gaming operators. And, and maybe if you can just highlight at a high level, what, what have been some of the issues that, that you know, have been front and center in Tennessee uh, as gaming has, and sports wagering has become sort of commonplace and part of, you know, just the, the, the local community there? Thanks, Keith, and thanks for the opportunity. It's, it's actually been, as I, as I was preparing to give this overview presentation, I actually created a timeline of all of the significant things that have happened in Tennessee's Sports Wagering Act history since 2018, uh, when the Supreme Court opened the door for the individual states, it's four pages long and it's single spaced. And so to talk about, you know, what are things that you all can learn from the state of Tennessee, th this could be a program sort of in and of itself. And so what I thought would be most helpful is if we, if I just gave just sort of a brief overview of the history and then touched on several of the significant things that have changed as recently as last month. And so, you know, in 2016, then Governor Bill Haslam signed the Fantasy Sports Act, which legalized daily fantasy sports. I think something that's important, a distinction that you mentioned a moment ago, um, is Tennessee has legalized, obviously, sports betting. But it's the first state, and maybe, if I'm not mistaken, the only state to legalize sports betting, but we have no other form of gambling uh, legalized here in the state of Tennessee. So we have no brick and mortars. Um, we have no horse racing. We have an education lottery, but it is strictly, it is, it is narrowly constructed and heavily regulated. And so I think that that's something that's very interesting about Tennessee is that we have no physical sports books. Um, we're an online only, and we mimic sort of the European style of licensing in that we allow, the state allows uh, sort of a, what, what I call like an open formulary. You can have an unlimited number of online uh, and mobile wagering licenses, which has proven um, 
interesting when you start to regulate and, and we'll get in, I'll get into some of that. Um, but I think the, 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 that's an issue that is a concept that maybe sounded better on paper. We started with four um, when the program, when the act went live in November of 2020, there were four and they were the big four. Uh, and we now have 13. But what you find is that some of the smaller platforms are not sophisticated enough to sort of comply with the regulations. And so you have um, all of these, you've got sort of the, the very typical large platform, the very typical large operators. And then you have a number of very small sort of only operating in Tennessee platforms and they can't comply. And that's that has proven to be problematic in terms of the regulations. And so um, a little bit of, uh, on the history, like I, like I said a moment ago, what's interesting about that, there's actually a lot about our sports betting history that's interesting. This started with a tweet. So there was a state senator um, out of Memphis who after the 2018 Supreme Court decision tweeted and wanted to gauge sort of public interest in an online sports wagering. And we spent a little bit of time uh, working with him on behalf of our client, the, the NFL, um, on trying to determine would a constitutional amendment be required because gambling is constitutionally prohibited in the state of Tennessee. Um, and they were able, because of the Supreme Court ruling, it was determined that a, a constitutional amendment was not required. Um, a, a tweet was was published. A number of stakeholders um, met with policymakers. There were some competing bills in, introduced in the fall of 2018 to be um, considered in the January session of 2019. One of those bills, <laughs> ironically, was Senate Bill 666. So we actually stopped. We we didn't pursue that bill and pursued. A, we chose a different vehicle. Some of the more superstitious members of the legislature felt like that was indicative of things to come. So you know, we all stepped away from Senate Bill 666 and instead used House Bill 1 um, as the vehicle to pass to, to pass ultimately what would become sports, sports wagering in Tennessee. The, the, the regulatory, so the way it worked in Tennessee was the, the, pro, the, the statute created what we sort of call the skeleton of the program. Um, created a sports wagering advisory council to work with the Tennessee Education Lottery Corporation um, to create the regulatory framework. Oh, that proved to be very challenging because you took sort of um, a, a square peg, which was sports wagering, and tried to shove it into a round hole, which was the education lottery. And as you all know, those two things are not the same. And so it took um, over it took about 18 months for the program to actually go live. So we actually didn't have a, a sports book. The first online sports book um, made its debut. It, I believe it was it was BetMGM, DraftKings, FanDuel, and then Action Two Four Seven, which is one of those small ones that that we were talking about that only operates in Tennessee. They didn't make their debut until 2020. Um, from I, that, I kind of just just a question there. So, so since it's gone live, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. we're talking about some of the numbers here in Massachusetts, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we see a lot of the same operators uh, here, obviously. But, but what you know, just 
general order of magnitude, you know, how has how has that taken in Tennessee and and what are the benefits? You know, do you have a similar structure down there with regard to tax revenues to support um, you know, state and local initiatives, um, you know, focused on on you know problem gambling and other issues like that? Absolutely. I actually noted some of the revenues dating all the way back to the sort of the first month. Um, so statutorily, our revenue is set aside in three categories, education, local government, and actually gambling addiction treatment, which is administered through our Department of Mental Health here in the state. Um, and so when, when another part of our regulations actually included initially a 10% hold, um, as you all know, that's typically dictated by the market and a standard is somewhere between six and 7%. We actually, our, our education lottery actually dictated a 10% hold. And so that uh, did sort of two things. It generated a significant amount of revenue. Our largest ever monthly handle um, sits at approximately 2.5 billion. Um, and that was in November of 2021. Fast forward to January of 2022 and record revenues generated by the licensed sports books continued with close to 40 million in, in, uh, in, yeah, in January of 2022. So 40 million in revenue um, coming from you know, approximately two and a half to 3 billion in, in sports betting handles. So um, all of that, again, the, one of the things when you talk about changes, one of the things that has consistently been introduced at the legislature since the introduction and passage of the act is how that money gets spent. Um, Tennessee, probably like a lot of other states, is flush with cash at the moment. And so they want to take this money. Legislators have um, pretty strong ideas about how money is to be spent. And this program, um, I, I think, Keith, you and I talked about this. This program is here to stay. I mean, you all can imagine Tennessee is in the in, in the Bible Belt, we say we're the buckle of the Bible Belt, and, and actually our, our governor let this legislation um, pass into law without his signature. It passed very narrowly, 19 to 12 in the Senate and 58 to 37 in the House, and then he let it become law without his signature, stating the only reason he didn't veto it is because it um, enacted a number of consumer protections that are not provided in the illegal gaming market. And so since that time, uh, since 2020, when when the legislature became aware of the amount of revenue generated by the program, there's been legislation introduced uh, yearly to change how that's spent. It hasn't passed, uh, but so statutorily, it's still set aside for those three buckets. Um, but it but it does generate a significant amount of money. I was looking to see if I had the April numbers. Um, and so in April, it took in 400 million in bets. So that's, yeah. So this is, you know, that, you know, since, since Tennessee passed the legislation and, you know, it's, it's now been an operation and sounds like, you know, the, given the revenue models, I expect that Massachusetts, you know, is going to get there, you know, pretty close as well, especially once, you know, the NFL, which is sort of the king of all the sports betting, you know, comes online this fall. Um, you know, and, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, from our perspective here in Massachusetts, what happens now that the NFL or I mean, the uh, NBA and NHL playoffs have ended, uh, where we go next uh, in terms of the, the volume. Um, 
But are there, are there any, before I turn it over, because I, I have some questions in this regard for, for Jeff, just given the, the amount of money and volume that's going through there, you know, it, th those are you know, the types of things that, that you know, invite and, and bring on, you know, a criminal element. And I, I want to focus on that because that's something that I think everybody's wary of to make sure that the gaming operations that are set up in each state are run uh, efficiently. But, you know, have there been any sort of big issues or, you know, big problems? You, you mentioned that, that the bill was recently uh, amended or the gaming structure was recently amended, but have there been any, you know, problems for the leagues or the operators in Tennessee that, that had to be addressed um, since it went live uh, in 2020? Sure. So generally speaking, no. The, the, the regulatory authority in 2021 transitioned from the tail to the Sports Wagering Advisory Council, the legislature sort of seeing some of the challenges. Our, our tail is really a contract administrator, and that's all that it does. And so they, the legislature, after the program had been uh, in, in live for a few months, realized that some changes need to be made. So that was sort of the first big change, which uh, was transitioning that regulatory authority to the Sports Wagering Advisory Council. Um, that legislation passed in 2021. They took effect in 2022. In 2023, just this past legislative session, there was sort of a comprehensive cleanup bill and to your point about sort of leagues and operators, there were some provisions in that legislation that ultimately passed um, that, again, Tennessee sort of is leading the way for better or for worse. And so, for instance, our tax structure changed from a 20 percent uh, handle, I'm sorry, from a, a 10 percent hold to a 1.85 percent handle tax. And we're the first state in the country to implement a, a, a 1.85 percent handle tax. We represent both the leagues and some operators, um, and there was some consternation around by, by from the operators around that change in tax structure. Um, ultimately, you know, they sort of made their positions known, but ultimately, kind of, I don't want to say they gave in, but they realized the writing on the wall was that if they continued, if there were operators who continued to not meet the ten percent hold, and there were, um, because it's virtually impossible. Uh, they were going to start, they were get considering the idea of suspending licenses. And to date, the, the Sports Wagering Advisory Council and the operators and the leagues have a really good partnership. Um, it's a learning curve. We're building the bridge as we walk across it. And, and Mary Beth Thomas, who's the executive director of the Sports Wagering Advisory Council, actually uh, partners very well with, with the operators. From a league perspective, the same piece of legislation that passed just this past April um, actually eliminated the requirement to use official leak data. And that was a really big deal. And so we actually may come back in January of 2024 and try to um, pass that, that compromised data that's been passed by, I think, 16 other states at this point. Um, Tennessee initially just said, thou shall use official leak data. And there were no real parameters or guidelines around what that was, how you determined that, if there was a challenge, how did the regulatory agency um, sort of litigate that challenge? And so there were there there were some issues that arose from one of the small operators. They challenged it, and ultimately the SWAC decided just to pursue eliminating that requirement, and they were successful in doing so. I see. So, and actually, that's actually a good segue because I'm going to talk to. Samir at the end a little bit about you know the data and, and how the technology and, and the, the how the different 
uh, operators are using certain data with the leagues uh, to, to sort of be the backstop or sort of foundation of the gaming operation. Um, for a quick turnover, Jeff, so, so it sounds like, you know, Chairman Paracella, when, when you were talking about, you know, uh, having the benefit of seeing how other states operated, um, you know, your point, I think, is well taken that the legislature, you know, tends to move a little slower and, and setting up the Gaming Commission to be a little bit more nimble to deal with some of these issues. It sounds like Tennessee actually kind of shifted to that model with their gaming folks being able to address some of these things. Um, um, so I, I, I'm going to turn now to Jeff, um, who's got more experience uh, in, in fighting corruption and, and has experience dealing with, you know, corruption in, in sports wagering and was just a, a simple um, exercise operating out of Las Vegas. Um, and, and now you've got sports books all across the country. Jeff, just given some of your experiences in, in, in fighting corruption, given the amount of dollars that we've heard Chairman Paracella and Katie Lane Bailey talk about, um, what um, what do you see as sort of you know the the potential issues or problems now that you've got up to uh, I think we're at thirty five different jurisdictions that have different gaming rights and regulatory oversight and structure requirements and you know where are the opportunities for for the criminal element to to try to make uh, some opportunistic dollars off of something like this. So thank you very much, Keith, and thank you um, to everybody for hosting us this afternoon. Um, with, uh, with great power or change comes great uh, responsibility, threat, and opportunity, as you're articulating. Um, you know, I think one of the most important folks in this call is going to be Samir when it comes to technology and the tracking of kind of how sports wagering is happening, um, how it is executing, and the internal controls um, to combat money laundering and a series of other possible challenges related to um, online gambling. So the way that I put this, and it's much like in the threats that are facing the United States and the world, as technology has improved um, and technology has changed and things have moved faster, threats are becoming, you know, opportunities have increased. We've been able to increase revenue. We've been in to increase you know, um, what we are doing as a country, but it also is creating challenges and opportunities. I think uh, Representative Paracella, as he described that there are six um, non-tethered operators, I believe in the state of Massachusetts right now, meaning internet gambling um, without the connectivity to an actual space versus Tennessee. Um, I would say just listening to Katie's assessment and then Representative Paracella, that's a best practice that Massachusetts was very careful um, because even some of the more sophisticated um, uh, gambling operations, um, money laundering is a huge challenge. And I can tell you from investigations that I'm involved in um, from, an, from an EY perspective um, and just what you're seeing on the news, before somebody who, were, who was an NFL player had to go and find an illegal bookmaker to gamble through. They don't need to do that anymore. They can go online and they can gamble um, through online gambling. That's the same with any sport that there really needs to be a tightening of, of, you know, and I know different leagues have different gambling policies, but this is a huge risk portfolio for, to me, 
for how states and are, are operating in the gambling space. Let me give you the example of how I how I put this in opportunity versus threat. While there are states that do not permit internet gambling, that does not mean that people have not figured out a way to defeat those processes. Okay. So while you are looking, and I, I give you this example, there's no betting on Massachusetts college sports in Massachusetts unless it's a tournament, unless you can figure out how to bet on Massachusetts college sports by defeating the technology, right? And, and I think, so when you're looking at this and we're looking at the opportunities as attorneys and accountants and people to kind of look at this, um, we need to be looking at it from, to me, from that money laundering perspective. I used to go and give a speech to the Patriots rookies every year, and that speech was on gambling. So at one time, I was the FBI's liaison to the sports leagues for gambling. At the time, that was illegal gambling with very limited legal gambling. That was a challenge in itself. And you can think way back even to point shaving at Boston College, which was one of the you know premier well-known gambling operations that people saw from an organized crime perspective. You don't need to be organized crime anymore to gamble. You don't need to be involved in organized crime to gamble. Anybody can do it. So as we are looking at this from a perspective of regulatory and what we can do incrementally better, how are the money laundering controls? How are the controls to make sure that, and again, going to Samir and data collection, that people are really doing a good job of evaluating this. So if I were to advise a major professional sports league that was partnering with, you know, any of the any of the gambling operations, this would be an area of concern for me. Um, as you can see, the NFL has had some serious challenges recently, and I would say to you, it is probably not isolated to the NFL. Um, right. So, yeah, to, go just, ahead. For Keith. those listening, as you're alluding to, I was, I was just, you're, I was going to bring it up. You know, we we heard. You know, as as gaming uh, became prevalent across multiple states and jurisdictions, you know, inevitably you're going to start to see uh, problems. And Calvin Ridley, who's sort of the first well-known example in the NFL, who was a uh, receiver for the Atlanta Falcons, who was actually injured and not playing, um, was placing wagers on the Falcons, uh, even though he wasn't part of the, the process. And that's strictly verboten. Um, by the league and by the players associations and so he ended up getting suspended for a year and then obviously we you know recently more recently in the news the Detroit Lions had a number of players that were um, you know found to have been uh, engaging in illegal gambling um, you know and and you know the, this new wave now that there's been a, a lessening of the restrictions on gaming um, you know you know sort of a quick history lesson um, you know, sort of, I alluded to this before, and it applies again, if you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. The whole passage of the original, you know, PASPA Act in the late 90s by Congress was in the wake of Pete Rose wagering on Cincinnati Reds games. And, and that was such a, uh, an affront to, uh, you know, the, the sports fans and that how could you possibly be doing that? And, and everybody remembers the Chicago Black Sox scandals from the earlier in the uh, 20th century. Um, that led to the passage of the act, but obviously the way it was done, it had some constitutional issues. And so when the Supreme Court rejected it, we're now kind of back into the um, wild, not so much wild west, but to your point, it's like the, the technology standards around gaming have changed substantially 
since it used to have it either roll up to a casino in Vegas or find your local bookie to place your bets. And and now that that you know it struck me when March Madness was happening and I'm sitting there on my couch and I got you know any number of different sports apps and I don't want to play favorites but they're on my phone and while the game is going on there is a prop bet that's proposed to who can uh, you know who's going to score next or given what the spread is is there going to be a, a change in the spread you know real time during the game and and you know the technology platforms that. Uh, you know, are available now to the gaming companies, both from, to your point, Jeff, of monitoring and security. Um, it, 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 this is kind of a nice segue to tier and everybody sort of smear. We've been kind of building up to you um, because this is where gaming is going. Technology is here to stay and, and, you know, no longer are you walking up to a window and just placing dollars or finding your local bookie and, 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 and creating a, a line of credit. Now this is all done electronically. And, and I guess, you know, the fact that today, North Carolina passed its own bill and for the first time the state is now allowing wages to be placed uh, through cryptocurrency on a blockchain here in the United States. Um, maybe you can touch a little bit about how technology and you know, the state of innovation in the industry is, is what's happening and, and where is this headed? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really exciting topic because when putting these two topics together, sports gambling and cryptocurrency, it's kind of like a hadron collider. You really don't know what kind of quarks are going to come from the combination of these two things together. With, but I think things are going to come to a head now with North Carolina. So in the definitions of their, of their sports wagering act, they had the definition of cash and cash equivalents, and they delineate things like credit cards and checks but they're all, they also delineated cryptocurrencies and digital assets. And so what that's going to do now is going to, it's going to provide a sandbox for startups in the blockchain space to go to North Carolina and, and start building products for sports gambling. Because what we're seeing outside of the United States is sports gambling and cryptocurrency is an exceedingly huge and lucrative market. To go back to North Carolina, or actually to just position that with Massachusetts, when you look at the Massachusetts Sports Wagering Act, when they talk about financial payment systems that these sports books are able to use, they have to be authorized by the commission. So if there were to be, and, and first off, Massachusetts also has, they, they're, they're pretty hands-off when it comes to cryptocurrency. They don't have a lot of laws regarding blockchain technology. So you can insinuate or you can put two and two together and think that if, if a sports book were to come to the Massachusetts Gaming Commission and, and, and provide the, the option for users to place bets using cryptocurrency, the Massachusetts Gaming Commission may not even allow that just because of the infancy of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology in Massachusetts. But with the North Carolina bill, they've actually delineated. So it's almost like, hey, if you have a blockchain sports gambling startup come here to North Carolina and test it out. Furthermore, in the North Carolina Sports Wagering Act, for, for those that are providing financial services to these sports books, they don't need a, a they don't they don't need to go through the licensing regime that other states have put on for sports book service providers. So already established blockchain startups could go and offer their services to sports books, knowing that they do not have to go through a heavily intensive licensing application process. 
So I think what we're going to see is North Carolina now serve as the hub of sports gambling uh, and blockchain technology innovation. Juxtaposition that with, with Wyoming. Wyoming is a very crypto-friendly state, but they don't have any sports teams. They don't have any professional sports teams. So the sports gambling appetite in Wyoming could almost be non-existent. But in North Carolina, you got you got the Blue Bloods in basketball. You got an NFL, NBA, NHL team. So I think what we're going to see is a lot of this blockchain sports gambling narrative start emerging from North Carolina. And we're going to see a lot of innovation happening in North Carolina. Now we're seeing a lot of this. So right there, because you raise a good point. So, you know, we're talking about innovation in, in sort of North Carolina, maybe becoming sort of the testing ground, proving ground for, for blockchain technology with gaming. But, but this has been going on already globally. Right. So so this isn't new to the industry. It's just new to the regulatory structure as it's sort of in its infancy here in the United States and in the different jurisdictions. But can you talk a little bit about how the technology has impacted just the gaming industry generally globally? And you know, maybe what are the some of the things that, that are been happening there that, that we're likely to see here as it becomes more prevalent in the United States on a blockchain or a crypto based gaming technology? Yeah, absolutely. So. Part of my practice is, is doing regular securities work on um, blockchain technology in the blockchain industry. So, and I have a lot of conversations with fellow crypto attorneys regarding blockchain technology, and not one of them is familiar with the website called stake.com, stake.com, S-T-A-K-E.com. It is an online sports gambling website that only accepts cryptocurrency. So you can only wager, you can only make sports bets using cryptocurrency. In my opinion, they're the second biggest blockchain company in the world, probably bigger than Coinbase. They handle, the stake.com handles 6% of all daily Bitcoin transactions, which is an astonishing number. That's close to probably around $300 million USD a day. Stake.com operates in more than, I think, 100 countries, but they do not operate in the United States. Furthermore, stake.com has, has sponsorship agreements, partnership agreements with Drake, $100 million sponsorship agreement with, with the hip-hop artist Drake. They're massively, they're a massive company. And what we've seen when they first started off was you can create an account and bet on a sports event using Bitcoin, and you didn't have to provide any personal information. You didn't have to provide anything. All you needed to do was sync your crypto wallet to the, to the website, and, and you would be able to make your bets. We've seen actually stake.com now pull that back. So you can create an account on stake.com. You can make your bet using Bitcoin. But in order to withdraw your Bitcoin from stake.com, you now need to provide identification. And that's probably because of other international governments, kind of like what, what Jeff was alluding to, and their KYC AML concerns. And so in order for stake.com to, to sustain its business, they had to now start pulling back this kind of come on stake.com and bet you know a full annuity and you don't have to provide any personal information at all so we're seeing that come we're seeing that being pulled back a little bit internationally wise but nonetheless the, the so the, the american gaming association created they they last month they they released a report the state of the states report and in that report they said that 
United States in 2022 accumulated $60 billion worth of revenue. In that same report, down the, a couple of pages down, they stated that $511 billion is being wagered illegally offshore, which is $40 billion potential revenue. And so a lot of these, a lot of these users, they like using cryptocurrency and they want to bet using cryptocurrency. Now, we should qualify that $511 billion, a lot of that money could be coming from bettors in Florida, Texas, and California because they don't have any. So they could be just using a VPN and, and then going offshore. But that's a staggering amount of money. And I know being somebody in the crypto space that there are avid users, there are avid sports gamblers who only want to use cryptocurrency. And the reason why is because it's immutable. It, 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 it's autumn, it's fast. You get your payments really, really quickly. You don't have to worry about financial, you don't have to worry about banks uh, uh, halting withdrawals or deposits because you're, you're going offshore. You don't have to worry about any of that. Um, so we're seeing sports gambling take off internationally wise, and we're not seeing it here in the United States, but now we, we may because of North Carolina and oh. the one sleeping giant, sorry, just a final no, no, go ahead. Go ahead, uh, one sleeping giant that I do want to, um, educate the, the, the audience on is, is bet three, six, five, which is based out of UK. And it's a massively huge sports gambling company. And United Kingdom is very progressive when it comes to blockchain technology. And so and Bet365 right now, I think they're only operating in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, but we can see Bet365, especially with the friendly confines of the UK crypto regulation environment, you can see innovation happening at Bet365 and then them bringing that, that technology here into the United States. So one of the questions, you know, so understanding that, that having a blockchain uh, platform to, to have wages being placed, what other, there? I know that there are other, you know, companies like GeoComply and SportsRadar and, and other company, technology companies that have an active role in the space. And, and just maybe if you can just touch briefly on what do those companies do and what types of innovation um, are they bringing to gaming, you know, from an enforcement and regulatory side for, for people gaming or placing bets that they're not otherwise authorized to do, given their jurisdiction? So I want to ask you about that, because then I want to come back to Jeff and ask him a question related to enforcement off of that. Sure. So, so GeoComply and SportsRadar are seemingly monopolies operating in the sports industry right now. So GeoComply is a VPN IP address tracker. And what it does is it looks at the IP address of the individual making the bet and then automatically sends a message to that sports book saying that that better is within the friendly confines of your state and is allowed to make that bet. GeoComply, based off of the latest statistics, handle 90% of all the bets in the United States. They are betting 90% of all of the bets in the United States. That is a seemingly, that's a, that's a monopoly at that point. Um, and it's only going to get better. So they're incorporating things like artificial intelligence and machine learning to make their predictive algorithms a lot more tighter. And as sports gambling matures here in the United States, we'll get a lot more data, which feeds into those algorithms. It just makes those tools a lot more accurate and concise. So that's GeoComply. And the other one is Sports Radar. And Sports Radar is a data provider that provides data from leagues to sportsbooks. And so these are in, in sports radar, it, it, it's actually 
going back to Takadia and, and the, the league data mandate, the league data mandate, um, Sports Radar is the official partner for providing data to these sports books for MLB, NHL, the NBA, NASCAR, UEFA. So all of the data that is being collected by Sports Radar, that is by doing that through looking at games, using algorithms to identify data that's buried within the data that they already have. All of that is now being passed over to these sports books via Sports Radar. And Sports Radar is is based here in the United States, uh, and it's it's currently being used by, again, MLB, NHL, uh, NBA. But the NFL had a partnership with Sports Radar, and this actually goes to the lack thereof innovation here in the United States regarding sports gambling. So the NFL did have a partnership with Sports Radar. So Sports Radar was going to take the data from NFL games and transmit that over to the sports books. In 2020, just let me pause right there just so we understand. So the data that we're talking about is helps provide the foundation for different prop bets that are happening. So, you know, uh, a, a, you know, a certain runner has 56 yards running, you know, and there's a bet, well, is this person going to get to 100? The, basing those types of bets off of the actual in-game performance this is sports radar, and then this this other entity you're going to talk about uh, are the ones that are tracking the information real time and providing it to uh, sports leagues or, or to the gaming companies so that they can actually run their bets off of this data. Um, I mean, it's you know you, you think about it, it's massive the amount of data that's happening here. Um, so anyway, I didn't want to cut you off, but I wanted to at least you know put it in the context as what we're talking about. No, I, I appreciate the clarification. So yeah, so again, to summarize that, they, Sports Radar is looking, watching games, generating data based off of what's happening in that game, providing it a sports. But as a side, it's actually providing that same data to the TV announcers as well. So when you hear these TV announcers spit off all of these facts, all of those facts are actually coming from Sports Radar as well. Um, right. So and so Sports Radar is handling, you know, the Major League Baseball and NHL, NBA, UEFA. The NFL has now partnered with a company called Genius Sports, which is based out of the United Kingdom, coincidentally. And now all of the data being gathered by gathered within the NFL is being handled by Sports Genius. And now Sports Genius is the one that's going to be passing off that information to the sports book. So it's just another example of how sports gambling innovation is certainly occurring outside of the United States, and the United States is, is lagging behind. Um, and so I, I know we're getting close to the end of our hour and to the extent anybody, uh, in the audience has questions, we have the Q and a feature. Um, I know we've got a couple of questions along the way, but, um, feel free to type them in either into that, or I guess into the chat too. I can see those. Um, hey, but, Keith, but I'll interject if you don't mind, just very quickly sure. to Samir's point, I think a preview of coming attractions for all of those who've recently adopted some sort of gaming act is that in Tennessee, um, the most recent change in the official league data requirement came from a challenge um, of the genius data. So, so we actually also represent genius. We, we, in Tennessee, we represent a lot of these, a lot of these players. And so we, um, we were actually contacted by the NFL to work with genius, who is their partner, 
to provide the official league data because of a challenge that had been um, submitted to the Sports Wagering Advisory Council uh, on this commercial reasonableness provision, which is included in a lot of the statutes across the country. Um, Tennessee sort of poorly outlining in its original act what defined commercial reasonableness. Tennessee was the first to require the use of official league data. Um, and since that time, a number of states have adopted what's considered a compromise between the leagues and the operators um, as it relates to official league data, where there's it, it creates this list of factors to be considered, not an exclusive list, but a list of 10 or 12 factors to be considered by the regulating authority when determining commercial reasonableness. And so that was... The most recent fight, I still have a bit of PTSD, PTSD from it, but that was the most recent fight that we engaged in at the state legislature here in Tennessee, um, because as a result of the challenge of these two small operators, who quite candidly just aren't sophisticated right. enough to, to utilize the data because of the cost associated with the data. Um, well, that's the, actually an interesting point. And, and the fact, so, so let me just shift quickly to Chairman Paracella, has, has any of, of that type of issue come up uh, here in Massachusetts about how the gaming companies and what their data sourcing is and, and reliability related to that? Or is that something that the commission uh, is, is addressing? Or, or how has that come up at all in, in Massachusetts? Um, no, not specifically. I mean, I, I think our language is, is sort of like may use official league data, um, you know, and um, and I've met with these companies that you're all talking about, you know, and the issues that, you know, they've talked about this. Interestingly, just uh, sorry, Katie, but um, we got some comments about the Tennessee legislation and how it wasn't so, so great, so how they essentially allowed anybody uh, to operate. And so I think that was sort of helped us to come up with some of these suitability standards that companies would have to meet before they could get involved in Massachusetts. And plus the $5 million licensing fee, I think. Will keep away sort that's of the fly by net operators as well. To legitimate players, I would think, and I think that yes. you know, you know, it's not just a revenue thing. There's actually a business purpose behind it. So, um, so I wanted to circle back to Jeff uh, quickly, uh, and I know we're getting close to the end of our our hour here. Um, so, from an enforcement perspective, and and you know, what are the challenges that you see, you know, in in this type of environment where You've got technology, you know, and the innovation that Samir has talked about um, that, you know, is already out there and we know is coming and there's going to be all different uh, ways for, for, for people with bad intentions to exploit it. What, what do you see as the challenges from, from that perspective, from an enforcement perspective, uh, and, and frankly, for the gaming companies to combat against it as well? So let me give you, like, I'm going to do a speed round here with a whole bunch of comments that were made. By different folks. Let me start with, you know, Chairman Paracella. Um, the Massachusetts uh, due diligence and the law is is what I would say is extremely thoughtful um, and extremely thoughtful towards making sure there is responsible gaming going on in the Commonwealth. So, um, again, I think they're going to have to continue to be diligent. Um, I worked with the Mass Gaming Commission as an FBI special agent when they were legalizing gambling in the Commonwealth um, and, and actually bringing the casinos on board. And the, the level of due diligence in the Commonwealth related to gambling is 
at least back then was exceptionally high in the law. You know, from my observations, there's a there's a a great commitment here to doing in the Commonwealth to be very, very thoughtful on execution here. So let me start with that too. Samir says some stuff that should make everybody really nervous, which is the idea of you know Bitcoin and the overseas gambling and the unregulated pieces to this, which is a huge threat when it comes to what I would say is all threat finance. That would mean illegal gambling money that could be moved and you could be moving money, which comes from, you know, all different types of things that concern people from, you know, moving terrorist money, moving nation state actor money, moving money from, you know, organized crime. Um, so there's a lot to be concerned about there. And I think people have to be very thoughtful of that um, as they're looking for regulation. I'm going to move into kind of that whole idea from an enforcement perspective and the bigger the bigger challenges, right? So where you used to have to, you know, I I, I say this and I, I hate to compare it to something else, um, which is really horrendous. I'm not going to even go there, but the access to the access to technology where where you didn't have it 20 years ago is making this much easier for people who didn't potentially have access to gambling. It would have been very hard. Um, so, you know, even with Chairman Paracella talking about focusing from a perspective on treating gambling addiction, one of the things that I'm seeing here is because of the ease, um, I am seeing an increase in fraud and in, in C-suites related to stealing money um, to get that money into the illegal, uh, not into, excuse me, into the legal gambling chain. So it's something I think people need to be really cognizant of is that because it's become easier and the gateway to entry is easier, it really is potentially gambling and people having a gambling addiction has always been a potential fraud generator. And it is something that is making it much easier for people in those C-suites. So that's my kind of like, you know, my quick, my quick view here. It really takes, you know, making sure and like the chairman Paracel is saying this is to continue the diligence from from the the you know from from mass you know political leadership to support mass gaming when it comes to you know common the Massachusetts Gaming Commission to making sure that they continue which they've done and been very deliberate here in the Commonwealth to do things in a very specific way. So I think it's important to continue on with that kind of process. So that's my speed round version. Great. So so we do have a, a question here, and, and this is probably geared to you, Samir. Um, and comes uh thoughts on on you know fanatics, which uh is is a big sports apparel company, and they've made uh you know some recent splashy acquisitions. They 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 just moved heavily into well, Michael Rubin, who owns Fanatics, just moved heavily into the card collectible space uh with the purchase of uh, PWCC. Um and 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 so now the question is, is you know, with their entry into gaming and and you know they've got you know, their own gambling platform, you know, their plan is to become quote a global digital platform with other offerings. You know, they've got apparel, retail, the, the the card collectibles I mentioned. You know, do you think that sort of multifaceted approach is something that's going to catch on? Um, you know, in in the industry, uh, both gaming and and otherwise. So. I mean, as a, as a heavy Fanatics user uh, and customer, um, I can tell you that 
a lot of users, a lot of customers, our fanatics are not really happy with the company. I mean, when you buy something, they ship it. There's always issues with shipping and, and things of those nature. So as of right now, I mean, fanatics is your one-stop shop, but it doesn't look like they're executing the way that they could be. Um, their, their execution could be a lot better. That being said, regarding digital platform, um, and, and when we talk about digital platform, maybe we're going to be talking about NFTs in the future or things of that like, things of that nature. Sports NFTs, as of right now, we're seeing litigation happening with Dapper Labs. We're seeing litigation happening with DraftKings and their NFT marketplace. We just saw the SEC go after Coinbase and Binance, which are heavy sports advertisers and sponsors. Um, and on top of that, in the SEC complaints, they, they delineated 14 blockchains. Four of these four major sports have their NFTs on these blockchains. So in order to buy one of these NFTs, you're going to have to use a litigious unregistered security right now. So what are the sports leagues appetite for even doing that moving forward? As far as like sports fans are concerned, consumption of NFTs, it's still waiting. I think sports leagues right now are still trying to find the right balance. For, for the for sports NFTs. When it comes to sports gambling, um, Fanatics, I, I believe Fanatics actually just purchased uh, a, a, a sports book um, yes. a couple of weeks ago, a really, really small one, points bet, I believe. And the reason for that is so that they don't have to go through the application process. And I believe that that book is only in 14 states. Um, but we'll see. The, the thing with sports gambling uh, and with gamblers is, is credibility, right? But when it's like, DraftKings and FanDuel, sports gamblers, those that are interested in daily fantasy sports, they've been using DraftKings and FanDuel since 2012. I mean, I, I consider DraftKings and FanDuel technology, innovation technology in the sports gambling industry. And it's probably the impetus for why, how sports gambling became legal uh, here in the United States. But these, and, and we're seeing credible companies like BetMGM and Caesar fall, sec, fall third and fourth to FanDuel and, and, and DraftKings. So, I, I think what Fanatics is trying to do is trying to create that vertical where they are a one-stop shop for anything and everything that is sports. But as, as we've seen right now, they're not executing the way their customers want. And, and with, this, with it becoming the, the global or the, the central digital platform for sports, in my opinion, it kind of seems like a really lofty expectation um, as of right now. And are they going to, I mean, they have so many different verticals. Are they going to invest in innovation? Are they going to invest in technology? And those are things that we just, we don't know the answer to that yet. Fanatics awesome. just launched its mobile app in Tennessee in May. And right. so it'll be interesting to see how, I think they launched in Ohio and in Tennessee in May. And so it'll be interesting to see how they perform and how they compare to the other platforms. Yeah, and, and here in Massachusetts, Fanatics is partnering with Plain Ridge Park. Um, and I believe that they've got, uh they're part of the 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 tethered license down there is that i believe that's correct uh chairman yeah okay um so yeah i mean look fanatics is certainly intentional and they're they're definitely going to be an innovative and and um you know large company to deal with across all, all sports and gaming and and apparently collectibles and so um, you know, to, to your point, Samir, there's going to be a lot of innovation coming into this space. And, and certainly I expect that Fanatics is going to be one of those innovative companies. So um, listen, we, we've now reached, you know, we've gone past our allotted hour. I, I could probably talk about this stuff with, with this panel for 
you know, days on end and a number of different issues. Um, and um, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to to speak with all of you about this and, you know, in the preparation for this as well, getting to know you. Um, and so with that, um, I, I don't believe uh, we've had any other questions to address in um, reaching the end of our allotted time. Uh, we just thank you all. I don't know, Devin, if you need to come back in um, to shut this down, but um, if not, then I'll just say thank you to Katie and Samir and Jeff and, and, and of course, Jaron Paracello for, for your thoughtful uh, comments on this. And, and I know I've learned a lot in this process and continue to learn a lot, um, but thank you for, for uh, taking the time to do this for uh, the Boston Bar Association. Yeah, I just wanted to jump on and say thank you so much to our panel for speaking this evening and thank you so much to our audience for joining us. We look forward to seeing you all at future events. Have a wonderful Great. evening. Thanks everyone, take care.